Yeah, we're going to see this morning about some purification that's taking place. That's what we saw. They were the Israelites. You know, they needed to be consecrated after coming out of Egypt and after some other things that were going on. And as we look in the book of Genesis, chapter 35, the first 15 verses, we're going to see that, uh, that Jacob's household needed to do an idol dump. They needed to get rid of these idols that they had accumulated <coughs> over the years as they began to prepare to worship the Lord. That was such an important thing that was going to take place. And so we're going to see then at the end of this passage how Jacob sets up again just a memorial marker to remember what had happened, what had taken place at the place where they were going to stop today. And so um, as we think about that, I want to read you this illustration. Responding to a previous calamity, Colorado Governor Jared Polis decided upon a practical utilitarian solution. When a rock slide caused a giant boulder the size of a house to tumble down and gouge a huge chunk from Highway 145 near the southwestern town of Dolores, Polis decided to simply leave it there. State officials uh, say that taxpayers will be better served by allowing the boulder to remain as a memorial of the freak accident and rebuilding the highway next to it. The total cost of rebuilding the section of highway, which includes a new section of guardrail next to the boulder, is estimated at $1.3 million, according to budget estimates. Taxpayers are expected to save around $200,000, which is what it would have cost had they decided to blast the 8.5 million pound boulder into smaller rock fragments. The boulder has been dubbed Memorial Rock because the rock slide happened on Memorial Day weekend. So they, they, the governor just said, we're going to leave it there as, some, as a, a memorial you know, to what took place, a marker to remind us what happened on that Memorial Day. And so, <clears throat> like I said, we're going to be seeing that Jacob's going to set up this, this memory marker again. But during this passage of Scripture today, we're going to see the power of God. God is almighty, and we're going to see his grace extended to, to Jacob and his household once again. And as I think about that for us, you know, Judy and I have experienced God's almighty power and his grace. And one, one particular situation is when we moved from Missouri to California, there were two items that we had to leave in the capable hands of friends in Missouri. We weren't able to take these things with us. First was our vehicle, one of our vehicles, I should say. It was my favorite car. It was my Saturn, a little five-speed base model SL. I love that thing. But it was starting to stall every time I'd pull up to a traffic light for no reason. We couldn't figure out what was going on. So we had uh, another missionary that uh, worked for OMS uh, that went to the church where we attended, and he worked on cars as well. He would uh, fix cars and sell them to send his children through college. And so he said, I'll, I'll work on it for you, and then I'll sell it for you, and uh, I'll send you the proceeds. And, of course, I'm thinking in my mind, he's going to uh, you know, do this, and he'll take um, the parts and labor out of the sale of the pro proceeds, um, and then he'll send me the remainder. That's not what he did. He sent me the wholesale price of the car. It didn't take him very long to repair it. I don't remember what was wrong, but he repaired it, and then he sold it very quickly, and then he sent me the full amount. And I was like, well, what about you know, the parts and labor? He said, don't you worry about that. So we experienced you know, just God's almighty power in that he was able to fix it very quickly, and then his grace in the fact that we didn't have to pay anything for the repairs. We also had to leave our house behind. We had to sell our house in Missouri, and we had a buyer all set up, and the day of closing, things fell through with the buyer, and uh, they weren't able to purchase the home, and 
we needed to leave because it was time for us to go. And so we had another couple from the church that were a great a real estate team, and, and we just left it in their hands, and they did an incredible job for us. They found a new buyer and, and then just helped us sign the paperwork halfway across the country. You know, they, they did all the due diligence that they needed to do. And so we just saw God's grace and mercy and his power through all of that. We just trusted him as we, as we had to move on. And so as we think about God's power and grace today, I just want to encourage every one of you to just think about and reflect upon a time that you've experienced God's grace and his power in your own lives. So just take a moment to think about that. When have you experienced God's grace? When have you experienced his almighty power at work in your lives? And just be reflecting on that today. A couple of weeks ago, we learned about the rape of Dina and the murder that Simeon and the murders that Simeon and Levi committed as retaliation for her rape. That was in chapter 34 of Genesis, and it was a dark chapter. If you remember, I said there's not a whole lot of redeeming qualities in this passage of Scripture. We don't even see God speak in that passage, in that chapter. We don't see them, uh, any of Jacob or his family talking to God in that chapter. It was so dark. But Genesis 35, verses 1 to 15, highlights a time of purification and worship following the sins of chapter 34. And just as God was calling the household of Jacob to purity and worship, that's what he calls us to, to purity and worship. And that's our big idea this morning from this passage of Scripture. God calls us to purity and then to worship. And if you haven't guessed already, that's the two main points today, purity and worship. But before we dive into this passage, would you just bow your heads with me? We want to commit God's word to him. Lord, we come to you. I especially come to you in humility today as a cracked and chipped vessel. Lord God, I'm just asking for your strength to share your word today with your people. Lord, I'm, I'm sim- simply the conduit between your people and yourself. And I pray today, Lord God, that you would use me, that your people would hear your voice and be transformed by the word of God. It's so powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, Lord. It has the power to cut all the way down as deep as it needs to in order to change us. I pray that that would take place today. Would you transform us to be more like your son, Jesus, as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. And this point is purity. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one 
pursued them. And so we see God's call in verse 1. As was mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we do not see God in Genesis chapter 34 at all. He does not speak to, the, to Jacob and his family in that passage. He's not uh, consulted by Jacob and his sons. But God does not remain silent. And we see that here as we come into the beginning of chapter 35. God spoke to Jacob after the tragedy of having his daughter raped and his two sons going on a murderous streak. God spoke to to him, and this is what he says. I'm, I'm certain that both, uh, both of those incidences broke the heart of God. He was watching sin run rampant in the lives of his chosen people. And certainly um, he could uh, have demanded or ab- abandoned, I should say, Jacob as his covenant carrier and started over with another group or a family, but he doesn't do that here. John Corson says in his commentary, in light of his situation, what God says to Jacob amazes me. He doesn't say, sit down, you're benched, or back off, you're done, or that's it, you're through. He says, arise, go up, because our God is a God of unbelievable grace. That's our first principle today, is that God's grace is incredible. His grace is incredible to us. We can't even comprehend it, right? There are times where God extends His grace to us and we have no idea why. Because we think of how bad we are, right? In our failures, I want you to be encouraged today that God is still concerned about us. In our failures, God still wants to use us. In our failures, God still calls to us. That's His grace that he extends to us, and grace is getting something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness and salvation, but God offers it to us anyhow as a free gift. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we, we experience the grace of God. We don't deserve to be forgiven of our sins, but he says, And in my grace... I'm giving that to you through faith. So where are you at today? Are you currently feeling like a failure? Are you struggling with sin? Do you feel like God would say to you, you're benched, you're done, or you're through? That's not what he did with Jacob, and that's not what he'll do with you. The Apostle Paul struggled with a thorn in his flesh that constantly tormented him. He pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. But this is what the Lord said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He says, hold on, Paul. When you're feeling weak, that's when I'm most powerful. I have this grace that I'm extending to you, and it's going to be okay. That thorn in your flesh is there to keep you humble because of the great things that you've seen in this vision. He's like, my grace is sufficient for you. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of who Jesus is and what, he, uh, what we have as a result of what he did. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we hear these words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Praise the Lord for that. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that wonderful? God's grace is available for us in the time of our need. In our failures, His grace is there for us. And that's an incredible promise that we should be uh, bring, uh, that should bring us encouragement today. We're not alone in our struggle with sin. God's chosen man, Jacob, struggled with sin. His, his son struggled with sin. The apostle Paul struggled with this thorn in his flesh. Many other individuals in the Bible struggled with sin. Many people that we look up to today struggle with sin. And praise the Lord for Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us all. Jesus Christ was tempted just like you and me, but he did not give in to those temptations. He was perfect without sin. That's why he's the only one who could take our punishment for sin. Because he was perfect without sin. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 says, He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Man, I just I want to continually seek God in humility every day. I just want to be humble before Him because then I can experience His grace. And so maybe you're ready to take this first next step today, and that's to humble myself before the Lord, repent of my sins, and seek His grace. Jacob experienced that. He experienced this God who has this unbelievable grace. He extended his grace to Jacob and encouraged him to move on from the pain, hurt, and sin of Shechem. We see God's message to him had three imperatives. Three things that he was asking Jacob to do. The first was to go up to Bethel. Bethel was where Jacob had first encountered, had his first encounter with the Lord through a dream. We see that in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. After that dream, that night of sleep, he set up the stone that he had placed under his head as a pillow, and he anointed it with oil, and he made a vow to the Lord. And so Jacob had a vow to fulfill in returning to Bethel. He wasn't supposed to stop at Shechem. And so going up would be topographically correct, even though Jacob was heading south. Shechem was right around 1,800 feet, while Bethel was close to 3,000 feet above sea level. And so they were heading up. The second imperative that God gives to Jacob is settle there. Jacob was never supposed to settle in Shechem. Remember the heartache of settling there? His family kind of got caught up in the world. The third imperative was build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from Esau. This is the only time that God directs a patriarch to build an altar. The other times they kind of do it of their own initiative. But here God, for the first and only time, says to Jacob, I want you to build this altar. I want you to, to purify yourself and then worship me. And Jacob begins to prepare his household for the move. We see his response in verses 2 and 3. The Lord didn't command Jacob to do these things, but I believe Jacob knew what needed to be done when the Lord commanded him to go up to Bethel. And so 
Golden Gate says, Jacob apparently recognizes that with this pilgrimage, the time has come when the gray area becomes black and white for him. Yeah, we've kind of been dabbling on the edge of, of uh, paganism a little bit here with these idols and these other things. And it's time to, to really get serious about following the Lord and making God the Lord my God, not having any other idols. And so no more gray area for him. It needed to be black and white. And so Jacob gives his household three imperatives. God had given him three. He gives his household three imperatives. The first one is get rid of the foreign gods. This was a spiritual renewal that was taking place. Walton believes uh, this was the way that Jacob was honoring the first part of the vow that he took at Bethel over 20 years before, where he said, the Lord will be my God. He's like, I'm getting rid of all these idols. We're not going to worship any other God but the true and living God. He's fulfilling that first part of the vow by saying, we've got to get rid of these idols. And the source of these foreign gods was probably um, twofold. The teraphim that Rachel had stolen from her father's house, so the household gods, remember she stole those when they left. And then the other part would have been the items that were perhaps plundered from the Shechemites or as part of what the Shechemite women brought when they were taken as slaves. So after they got rid of their foreign gods, then they needed to purify themselves. That was the second imperative to his household. He says, purify yourselves. And this is a purification of the heart. It involved both the physical washing of their bodies and the symbolic washing of their hearts. And this was probably necessary because they had uh, looted the dead bodies of the Shechemite men. They had become defiled because they had touched dead bodies. So they needed to purify themselves, not just physically, but also spiritually. The third thing that he implores them to do is to change your clothes. This symbolized the sanctified heart to the Lord and a new purified way of life. Part of the purification process would have been washing their clothes also to remove that defilement. And then Jacob gives the the purpose behind the purification process. He said, we will travel up to Bethel and I will build an altar to the God who did two things for me. First, he answered me in the day of my distress. This is probably a reference to Genesis 28 when Jacob was fleeing for his life from Esau. But we know that God had taken care of him in so many other ways, had heard his cry in distress. Think about it when Laban was being deceitful about his wages and changing his wages. God was there in his distress. You know, when he leaves and Laban chases after him and he's fearful in his distress, God was with him. He had heard his cry. How about when Jacob is getting ready to meet Esau and he's so afraid because there's 400 men that have come with Esau. And in his distress, God heard his, his answer. And then just what we learned about in chapter 34, if you remember, Jacob was concerned that the Canaanites and the Perizzites, those that are living in the land, would, uh, would join together in, in force and come after his family for the fact that Simeon and Levi had killed all the Shechemite men. And like God had answered him in all of those things in his day of distress. But that first time in Genesis chapter 28, when he's fleeing from his brother, he stopped for the night at Bethel and had the dream of the stairway that went up to heaven. And he heard the promises of God and then made a vow to God there. 
The second thing that God did that he wanted the, his household to understand so that they could worship God with him is that God had been with him wherever he had gone. We saw that throughout the chapters 29 to 34 in Genesis. Finding Laban's family in Padan Aram for the very first time. Marrying Leah and Rachel. Having children. Gaining flocks. Protection from Laban's deceit and wrath. Meeting with Esau. Probably even more things that were not even recorded in Scripture. God protected him from. He had always been with him. So the purpose for the purification was to prepare to worship the Lord. Jacob was not commanding his household to clean up so God would call them. He was commanding them to clean up because God had called them. They were his chosen people. And what we see next is the response to Jacob's, uh, of Jacob's household in verses 4 and 5. They kind of do this idol dump. Everyone in his household, whether they were direct family or hired hands or slaves, gave Jacob their foreign gods and their rings in their ears. The earrings could have been uh, part of the, the bounty taken from the Shechemites. They would have been amulets, amulets with an inscription stamped on them to a particular deity. So the NIV translates the Hebrew word as buried, but it's the same Hebrew word used for what Achan did when he hid or concealed the stolen items that he had taken from Jericho, as we, saw, as we see in Joshua chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. It's more, like, it's more likely that Jacob hid or concealed the foreign uh, gods and, and earrings under the Ogat Shechem, and has the idea of dumping the idols as though they are trash of no value. That's, that's incredible right there, right? These are made out of precious metals. And he's just dumping them like they're of no value. These are no good. Whew. Perhaps a lot of wealth went away that day. The second principle we see through all of this is, is that God is pleased when we get rid of the idols in our lives. Is there an idol dump that you need to do today? They come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? Anything that just takes our attention away from the Lord can become an idol. It can be possessions that we have. It can be a relationship that we're a part of because we just look at that person with such awe, right? Oh my, they're my everything. What about God? Idols can be positions that we're in. Idols can be attitudes of the heart. So what are your idols today? Just take a moment to identify the idols in your life because we're going to be asking you to take this next step. It's the second one today, and that's to get rid of my idols by giving them to the Lord so he can conceal them and I can prepare to worship him only. You see, God calls us to purity and worship. You may need to sell some things that are idols in your life so you can spend time with the Lord and put him first. You may need to resign from certain positions that keep you from worshiping the Lord. You may need to readjust relationship, a relationship that is unhealthy so you can put the Lord first. And when you ask the Lord to reveal the idols in your life, He'll do it. He'll reveal them to you. Then you just need to be obedient in getting rid of them. John Corson helps us understand the motivation that should drive us to give up our idols. This is beautiful. When I realize how kind and good and benevolent and merciful God is to me day after day after day, let that sink in. 
It causes me to want to put away my trinkets and toys that are not of him. Man, if we really start focusing on who God is and what he's done for us, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his benevolence, boy, it should be the motivating factor for us to go, these things that I'm holding on to are nothing. They're nothing. They're just garbage. With their focus in the right place, they begin their journey from Shechem to Bethel. And we see God's grace here. If you recall, Jacob is fearful that if the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in the land, join forces and attack them, they're going to be destroyed. We saw that in verse uh, 30 of chapter 34. He was fearful that Simeon and Levi's uh, murderous actions would motivate the current inhabitants to attack them and destroy them. But we see God's grace at work once again. They certainly would have been uh, deserving of some kind of recourse from the Canaanite and Perizzites. They should be held accountable for their actions. But instead of some kind of retaliation, the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, and they were able to travel through the territory untouched. Jacob's household had definitely received something they did not deserve. And this was proof that God was still with him wherever he went, especially as he traveled back to Bethel. Third principle today is this. When we fear God, when we reverence God, we don't have to fear anyone else. The fear of God is not just being afraid of Him, although He's deserving of that. He's all-powerful. The fear of God is also referring to reverencing Him, giving Him the proper respect as Creator, Sovereign, King, Lord, Master, and Savior. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for persecution, he told them, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about God there. He's like, Don't be afraid of these men. They'll kill your body. That's all right. If you're a follower of Christ, you're going to spend eternity with me in heaven, right? He said, you need to be concerned about God Almighty and whether or not you're pleasing Him and doing what He's asking you to do because He's the one that can also destroy your soul in hell. So maybe you need to claim that truth today and begin to live with that reality. That when we fear God, we don't have to fear anyone else. So they're on their way and God is with them. Matthews in his commentary says, By abandoning their gods and rings at Shechem, Jacob closed the chapter at Shechem and looked ahead to the realization of the Bethel promise and vow. And so we see next our second point, which is worship, in verses 6 to 15. <clears throat> Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan, there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Alone Bahuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. 
Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it and also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. So we see in verses 6 to 7 this building of an altar. As soon as Jacob and his household arrive at Bethel in Canaan, he built an altar in obedience to God's command. You see, God calls us to purity and worship. Jacob was being obedient to that. God, or Jacob called the place El Bethel. <clears throat> so El means God. So Bethel means house of God, which means that El Bethel means God of the house of God. Jacob was not just focusing on the place where God was when he first stopped at Bethel more than 20 years before. Jacob is now emphasizing the presence of God being there. It's like, it's not just the place where I met God. God is here now. He's here now. And then we have this little caveat before the narrator continues with the Jacob narrative. <clears throat> it's the burial of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. <clears throat> we knew that Rebecca's father and brother sent her nurse with her, Genesis 24, 59, but we didn't know her name until now. Her name was Deborah, which means a bee, a little tiny bee. At some point, she joins Jacob's household. We're not told when. Kyle and Dillich say Deborah had either been sent by Rebekah to take care of her daughters-in-law and grandsons or had gone of her own accord into Jacob's household after the death of her mistress. Most scholars believe that the mention of Deborah here is proof that Rebekah had already died. We don't know because it's not recorded. Which is interesting because Genesis records the death and burial of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It also records the death and burial of each of the patriarch's favorite wife, Sarah for Abraham and Rachel for Jacob. But it does not record Rebekah's death and burial. The only time we see anything about this is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 31, where Rebekah talks about where she was buried. In the cave at Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan. But it doesn't tell us when she died. When she was buried there, none of that. Deborah was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it's the exact location we don't really know. And the place uh, was called Alone Bakuth, which means oak of weeping. So after the obituary, the narrator continues with Jacob. In verses 9 to 13, we see God's presence there. I'd encourage you just to take a look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 8, and verse 22. And compare it with Genesis chapter 35, verses 9 to 14, to see the many similarities between Abraham and Jacob's encounter with God. It's so fascinating. I'll give you just a couple of highlights. God tells them both that he is El Shaddai. He uses that name. I'm God Almighty. God tells them both to be fruitful and numerous. God changes both of their names, Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. God will make them into a community of nations. God will give them the land of Canaan. And then God withdraws. We see all of that in both of those accounts. God appeared to Jacob again after he turned from Padan Aram. Now, this isn't when he's in Penuel. Talking about this time in Bethel. We know that the first time was at Penuel when he wrestled with God. But now God appears to him a second time at Bethel. God reiterates what he had told Jacob at Penuel. His name will no longer be Jacob, deceiver, 
But when I'll be Israel, he struggles with God. And then we see that the first encounter that Jacob had with God at Penuel, he, had, he asked God his name, but God didn't give him his name. He just simply blessed him. It goes on really quickly. This time, Jacob does not need to ask God his name because he freely offers it. He tells Jacob or Israel that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And this name for God is significant here because he's promising to make Jacob into a nation and a community of nations, to have kings come from his descendants and to give him the land that he gave to Abraham and Isaac. And for all of this to happen, it's going to have to take a mighty God sovereignly working out every single detail. Because you just saw this morning, right, that the Israelites are going to go into exile in Egypt. They're not going to be in the promised land right away. We know from reading the Bible and from historical documents that God accomplished everything that he promised Jacob or Israel. And so the fourth principle today is this. We can trust that God is almighty. He is still able to accomplish his will and purpose in your life because he is almighty. There's nothing that's impossible for him. Aren't you grateful for that today? When we humble ourselves, repent of our sins, get rid of our idols, reverence God and seek his grace, then he can work in and through us to accomplish his plan and purpose for us. We're not cleaning up so God will call us. We are cleaning up because God has called us. We are his children if we're followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying to us today, it's time to get rid of those idols. It's time to purify yourselves. It's time to wash your clothes or change your clothes. He will take us from where we are to where he wants us to be. And maybe you're ready for that third next step today, and that's to trust in God's almighty power to accomplish his plan and purpose in my life. After God appeared to Jacob and blessed him, he went up from him at the place where he had talked with him, that's talking about Bethel again. They just like to use a lot of words, I think. But. And then we see Jacob's memorial in verses 14 and 15. Jacob set up a memory marker, a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. This was the second time that Jacob had set up a stone pillar in Bethel. The first time, if you remember, it was when he was fleeing from Esau, and he set up the stone pillow he had used as a memorial. He not only anointed this stone pillar with oil, but he also poured out a drink offering on it. This is the first time this is mentioned in Scripture. A drink offering. Later on, this is a regular part of offerings to the Lord, as we'll see as we get through the Old Testament. God calls us to purity and worship. And then there's a reminder again that Jacob called the place Bethel, where he talked with God. And that ends this passage of Scripture, but let's review a little bit today. Do you need to humble yourself, repent of your sins, and seek God's grace? These are just questions to think about. What idols do you need to get rid of in your life? Do you need to reverence God today? Are you ready to trust God's almighty power to accomplish His plan and purpose for you? You know, as a body of believers, where do we need to humble ourselves, repent of our sins, and seek God's grace? As a body of believers, what idols do we need to get rid of? As a body, how should we reverence God today? And where do we need to trust in God's almighty power to accomplish his plan and purpose for us as a church? Those are important things for us to really contemplate. We need to remove those things from our lives. On December 4th, 2000, 
Forestry officials in Germany carried out a necessary but unusual task. They cut down trees that had been planted in the form of a swastika some six years, 60 years before. When viewed from the air, the trees were lighter in color than the forest around them, showing clearly the symbol of Nazi Germany more than a half century after the Third Reich had attempted to take over the world. The continuing effects of evil represent one of the great realities of sin in the world. We have noted how the habit of deceit ran through Jacob's family. We have seen Isaac's weakness as a father reflected in Jacob as treachery, murder, and adultery ran rampant in the patriarchal family. We've noted that the sins of Simeon, Levi, we haven't gotten to Reuben yet, uh, unpunished at the time of their commission, came back to haunt them in Jacob's final blessing of the tribes, which we'll see in a little, a couple of weeks. We find it hard to believe that it took 60 years for people to notice those Nazi trees. Perhaps officials refused to deal with the problem. But just as Jacob's family had to rid themselves of foreign gods and trinkets of evil, so we need to cut down the Nazi trees in our lives so sins of the past do not cover or carry over into the present. Isn't that so true? Sometimes we just let things go because we don't want to have to deal with them. We don't want to have to deal with that sin in our lives or that idol that we know is set up. And so we just let it go year after year after year and, and we never deal with it and it's time to take care of it. It's time to, to bury that idol. It's time to give it to the Lord so that he can take care of it and we can worship him alone. And as we think about that and allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in your heart and mind, to, would you just bow your heads with me? The <clears throat> ushers are going to prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards and the worship team is going to come to lead us in a closing song. Lord, we just come to you today. We confess to you the idols that we have allowed to take your place in our lives. We just repent of those today and, and we give them over to you. We pray, Lord God, that you would just cleanse us. You would purify us. Lord, we, that we might um, be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. We just thank you for your word today and how it transforms us when we're obedient to it. Now, Lord, I pray, too, that you would just bless this tithes and offerings for your honor and glory. I pray that you would give us wisdom in using those sacrificial gifts for your glory. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we...